Good morning. Matthew chapter 3. If you are new to Calvary Chapel this morning, uh, it's, it's our custom here to go through the scriptures verse by verse. So my text this morning, I did not pick out because I was trying to pick on any of you, okay? Um, I teach whatever is next in the text. That rhymes. That's as corny as Roger's jokes. So, um, uh, so I'm just going to stick to the text. We're going to talk about uh, judgment this morning in light of repentance. And uh, it's, um, it is what it is. So, and this morning I'll just hide behind the text. If you don't like the text, you can take it up with John the Baptist and then Jesus, because he repeats all of this stuff later and then provides greater clarity in regard to all of it. And uh, a little uh, statistical fact is, well, I'll just ask you, who do you think talks about judgment and hell the most in the Bible? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus does. In fact, in one sermon, I think I counted 25 references to judgment and, um, yes, hellfire. So I'm not a hellfire preacher. I'm just a textual preacher. So I'll preach it when it comes up, and then that's just how it goes. Fair enough? All right. Like my wife says, you get what you get, and you don't throw fit. So, but I'll probably still get a nasty gram, but that's okay. Why don't you stand up, and uh, I'll read the Word of God to you. Be picking it up in verse 7 of Matthew 3. All right. We know that John is there at the Jordan River. Uh, he is east, probably of Jericho, along the highway there. And he is preaching about the kingdom of God, its, its, uh, its eminence, that it's at hand, of course, because Messiah is at hand. And um, as he's preaching, some other people show up. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, you do not bring up judgment and wrath for the fun of it. It's not some random thing in your word. It's consistent from the beginning. You are not to be trifled with. You created us. We rebelled. You provided atonement for us through your Son as the only way to salvation. Apart from your son, all humanity is lost. So Lord, I pray that the, the reminder to some of us, the message of judgment for the first time to others, Lord, that it would settle deep within our hearts and that we would respond appropriately. It's coming and we can't stop it. So Lord, get our attention, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated if you would. All right. To turn back to verse 7 with me. It says, But when he, that's John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, you children of snakes, 
Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath to come. Now, the text says that uh, it wasn't, this wasn't a delegation from the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the, the Jewish high council uh, where you know, a few men would go down, and they did, and they were to question John to figure out who in the world this guy was because he was creating quite a stir. Everybody from all over Israel, it says, was coming down to his baptism. This seems to be a different thing because it says many of both from each side, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they were coming to John's baptism, okay? But as the text shows, uh, demonstrates, John knew what was going on with them. That is, he was on to them. He knew their motive, and he wasn't going to stand for it. And um, John, of course, knowing these men, uh, he doesn't point out their motive, but he just calls them out immediately, okay? Now, their motive, um, you guys are somewhat familiar with politicians, right? A little bit. Uh, politicians are really becoming more obvious these days, aren't they? And, uh, well, these guys' motives are very similar. Uh, and, and to be honest, religious leaders are much like politicians because they're always uh, trying to maintain position. They're always trying to maintain their popularity uh, among the people. Uh, they always want to keep that influence. And so these guys are there for job security. This is all for show. It's all for show. Now, as we have been reading about the text, the, the multitudes of people, which happens to be the constituents of these two groups, the people that uh, look up to them, the people that love them, they are the ones that have come to John's baptism. And uh, they're repenting, they're being baptized to prove their repentance. And so if you try to imagine, if, if the Pharisees and Sadducees were co to come down to the river and then maybe... Uh, stand on the, the, the banks watching everybody else be baptized while they abstained, and then perhaps engaging in some kind of argument, a theological argument with John, that would put them at risk of losing their constituents. They're all for it, but then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, if they were against it, we would start to see a division between them. And because of the nature of these men, they're not willing to risk that. Much like politicians, right? Uh, typically, Quite often, they don't stand for what is true, and they don't have convictions about just doing the right thing in spite of everyone else. They try to figure out what everyone else is thinking, what they want, and then they bend. It's, it's spineless. It really is. And that's the nature of these two parties here. They are spineless. They're invertebrates. Okay? Now, up to this point, uh, there's, just, there's no danger in them going and being baptized, kind of going with the flow. Because in, as far as their convictions are concerned, there's nothing at a compromise. Okay, when you look at John's preaching so far, uh, nothing is, because there's been no conflict between them. So he's, John's not actively challenging their legitimacy, not yet. He wasn't claiming to be someone special. Remember, he denied being the Messiah. And if he had claimed to be the Messiah, that would have started a whole new conversation. But he said, I'm not the Christ, okay? Uh, at this point, he wasn't saying, Things like Jesus, you know, destroy the temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. There was none of that going on, nothing super controversial. Uh, he wasn't causing a revolt. There was no tyranny, none of that. He's just simply preaching repentance, faithfulness to God, which then had overtones of, of being loyal to God's law. All of that to the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's harmless. But of course, that's just the beginning, just the beginning. 
Now, I think what's important, um, some of you have read through the Gospels. I don't want to assume that all of you had. If you have not, it's really easy at this point to underestimate these men, okay? Because as the story goes along, the lengths that these men are willing to go to to maintain position uh, becomes really very scary, very scary. Uh, we know that uh, when, when men are in, in really intoxicated by something called popularity, called power, when you start taking that away from them, what do they do? Some people get very, very dangerous. And that's what we see in the Gospels. Okay? Underneath all of this religious garb, this big show that they put on, uh, there's a devil in there. And they're going to do whatever it takes to maintain their position. And the word that keeps coming up as Jesus grows in popularity among the people is how envious these men become. Have you guys ever become a little socially... Um, hazardous when you're envious? You're thinking, I'm not in high school anymore. It doesn't matter, okay? Uh, we like position. We like popularity. So John, of course, uh, being the kind of guy that he was, uh, he's the first to kind of disturb this uh, sleeping beast, and um, things get interesting. Another thing to point out that is interesting is that, it, is that the Pharisee and the Sadducees have come together, that combination is a little strange. Okay? The two groups uh, weren't friendly toward one another for various reasons. I think one of the, the best examples of that, you remember when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for the last time, and uh, he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Pharisees on this side and the Sadducees on this side, and things are just getting crazy. And then Paul says, and it's quite comical how he just kind of randomly throws it out there, but he says, I believe in the resurrection. And then it turns into a riot between them because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the afterlife, the Sadducees didn't. And so suddenly you find the Pharisees kind of siding with Paul and his theology, but then the Sadducees are stirred up and they actually have to pull Paul out of the midst of it before they tore him to pieces. So understand, Paul was a Pharisee, so he knew how to get these guys going. And in order to just kind of save his bacon, it's not a Jewish joke, but uh, <laughs> he just gets in there and does that. So anyway, um, real quick about the Sadducees. You know, these, uh, they were a part of the aristocracy. They were wealthy and, and all of that, and very political. And they at least tried to, to put on kind of a religious facade to, as we've said, to satisfy their constituency. But their faith was really just deep down was theological liberalism. That's what it was. Uh, they denied the existence of angels, the, the, the reality of miracles. Uh, as I said, they, they rejected any idea of the afterlife, of the resurrection, uh, both heaven and hell. And if, you, if you're able in your theology to remove any accountability or reward uh, from things of this life, then what you do is you remove all motive for holiness. You remove the motive for righteousness. You get it? If there's no consequences from my actions here, then what's the big deal? Isn't that correct? So they, they, uh, they didn't have a problem being corrupt. And Jesus will point that out later. And that's really when the Sadducees want him dead. The Pharisees, on the other hand, these guys were actually deeply religious. But in all of their religion, they were flawed deeply. Okay? A mixture of all kinds of things. Uh, Jesus will point out very clearly that what they would do is, is they would lay upon the common people all kinds of religious rules. They'd actually take the law in some cases 
and they would kind of exaggerate it, and then they would lay it on the people, and the people just could not possibly do what the Pharisees wanted them to do. And then Jesus says, and then you do nothing to help them out. He says, you will, you will cross over land and sea to make one convert, but you'll do nothing to help him out. And he says that's the, the, clearly the opposite of the mercy that God communicated in the law. Oftentimes, they would keep a, a less significant law so they wouldn't have to keep a greater law. And Jesus really gets after them for that and because it was one of the, the big laws. It was, had to do with honoring your father and mother. And he said they had come up with this, uh, this way around it. And you could have, you know, your parents would be in desperate need of your help. And you had the goods. You had the material means to help them. And so what the Pharisees would say to them so they wouldn't have to get rid of their funds is you could claim it as Corban. That is, I have offered it to God as a gift. And therefore, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't, I can't give to you what I've offered to God, even though I fully plan on spending it on myself. You get it? And Jesus says, you guys are condemned for this. All show, no depth. Jesus accused them of being like whitewashed sepulchers. You're beautiful on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. So he's exposing all this, this false spirituality. We'll, we'll get into all of that. I don't want to spoil all the fun at this point. So what you find is in, in history and in the scriptures, the two disagree with one another, but they have this public display of affection for one another in coming down to the baptism. And, uh, but when John gets in their face, you can see that his disagreement is actually far greater than the disagreement that they have mutually for one another. John isn't messing around at all. Crazy stuff. So John says to them when he sees them, you brood of vipers. That is to say, you offspring of a snake. Yeah, offspring of a snake. He knows that what they're up to, he's not going to be fooled. They're both, not just one side or the other, but two sides, you know, the, the, the extremes of the spectrum. Both are evil, both are wrong, both are very dangerous, bad stuff. Now, there is some significance to this, uh, what is really perceived as an insult to them. Uh, if I had called you a snake, the child of a snake, if I did it in public, you know, you would probably be offended as I'm addressing your character. Okay, but here uh, in the text, we have both biblical and historical context that gives this description of them even, it's even more insulting, okay? Um, it's not random. The reference is rooted in Genesis 3.15, okay, to the seed of the serpent. Now, first of all, John isn't referring to them as who uh, God was talking about in that prophecy, but they're behaving as if they were, okay? The seed of the serpent is the one who resists the truth, and he's the one that resists God. He's contrary to righteousness and all of these things. And John is saying, you guys are behaving like that. That's who you really are. You haven't fooled me. You may have pulled the wool over the people's eyes, but you haven't fooled me, okay? You haven't fooled me. And so these guys are extremely offended because he's saying that they're behaving satanically. Satan is the seed of the serpent. Satan is the seed of the serpent. Uh, and of course, many people would say, well, that's, that's Antichrist. Well, what's the real difference uh, in Revelation? Antichrist is possessed by Satan and so forth. Uh, very interesting stuff. We'll get into the Genesis 3.15 prophecy another time. So, but what John is saying is saying, you're behaving like your father, the snake. And then what does Jesus just 
come out and say plainly to them, no, your father's just the devil. You're the children of Satan. Not literally the children of Satan, but that idiom there that it's like a child or a son like his father. Okay? You're, you're behaving like Satan. You resist the truth. You resist what is right. You're always in the way of what God is trying to do. And uh, unlike everybody else, the Pharisees, the Sadducees resisted Christ more than anything. And so John is all over these guys. They're deadly. Um, now, when John confronts the Pharisees like this, this is actually at great risk to his own ministry because the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't have our view. Uh, I'm sorry, the people of that day don't have our view of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The people of the first century, they adored the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They admired them. They looked up to them. So now we have two power struggles, don't we, between them. And so John could have lost his constituency. But unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees, does John care? He cares nothing about it. He is going to perform the will of God at whatever expense. Okay. So instead of backing down, John just keeps going. And he says, you children of a snake, he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Making things better or worse? Worse. Yeah, worse. Yeah. Now, the statement here uh, wasn't just insulting. To the Pharisee and the Sadducee, it's just, well, especially to the Pharisee, it's, it's theologically nonsense. And the reason is, in their thinking, God had reserved all of his wrath for the Gentiles. The, the ancient Jewish writings say that, that God created you and me, the Gentiles, to keep hell burning. We were the fuel for hell. So to talk to a, a Jew like that, especially a, one of the religious leaders, that just didn't make any sense. Now you're just, you know, now you're just insulting us. Okay. John goes on. He says, not only will you suffer the wrath of God, uh, he's saying that if you are to avoid it, you have to do some things. He says to them, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by stones. He could mean the literal stones on the bank of the Jordan River. Some commentators think because of the reference to making children uh, to Abraham, uh, it's probably speaking of Gentiles who are standing around watching this whole thing unravel. Because God is going to uh, make children of Abraham from the Gentiles who believe. You get it? And so some people think it's the Gentiles standing by watching. I don't really know. Um, the point is, is that the idea of thinking that Abraham is your father will help you, John is saying, that's a dangerous idea. It's dangerous. So John told these men that they needed to do a number of things. Okay? Like everyone else, he says, you need to repent. You have to repent. It's not an option. Verse 2. They also needed to bear fruits worthy of repentance. Verse 8. And then they have to abandon uh, this false idea, this hope in their heritage. Now, as we mentioned in verse 2 a few weeks ago, uh, repentance is not one thing, it's actually two things, right? It's two things. It requires a turning away from sin and then turning to God who saves the sinner. We can't just stop sinning. How many of you guys have managed to just stop sinning? Yeah, you can't just turn from sin. You have to then turn your life over to God and live for him. So repentance is it's, it's two things. It's not, it's not one. He's saying these men... You, you must forsake your pride. You must forsake your hypocrisy, your compromise. 
then you need to submit to God. You need to bear fruit that is worthy of repentance. Now, that bearing fruit worthy just means to, to live a life that is consistent with the fact that you have repented, that you've turned from sin, that you live for God. You're, you're in obedience to him and his will. You need to be converted to the truth. You need to walk in the truth. But then John mentioned something very interesting. And I think at first we might say, well, that's not something I'm in danger of, but actually it is. And we'll talk about it at the end of the sermon. And that is, it's a misplaced trust. They're trusting in the relationship to Abraham, who's the father of the Jews. He's the first Hebrew. So the question is, why would they feel secure? That is, why do they think they would escape from God's judgment just because they were related to this patriarch? Is there an advantage to being related to Abraham? There's a huge advantage. Listen to what Paul says. He says, what advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, but chiefly because to them, that is the Jews, were committed the oracles of God. The oracles is a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. What an advantage, right? The pagans, the heathens outside of Israel, they had no revelation of God, no special revelation. Now, according to Romans 1 and Psalm 19, they had creation, they had their conscience, but as far as the revealed word of God, God revealing himself personally, the pagan had none of that. The Jews, they were privileged. They had all of it. God gave him his word. He, he revealed himself to them. They knew his will. They had the roadmap. Of all people, they had the game plan. But there's more. There's more benefits. It was to them who are Israelites, Paul says, to whom pertain the adoption. God chose them as a nation, as a people group. To them pertain the glory. That's most likely a reference to uh, God's presence as he dwelt between the cherubim and the temple. You think that was a privilege? Where the high priest once a year could go in before the presence of God and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat? And God saying, I will meet you there at the mercy seat when your sins have been washed away. And then I'll treat you accordingly, that you're forgiven and washed. He was there in their presence doing those things. The covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, referring to the priesthood. And then the promises. And he says, of whom are the fathers. What advantage was it being a Jew? Every. They had every privilege. But the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're foolishly presumptuous. Being related to Abraham, possessing God's word, having his promises, they confused that for a free ticket. It was a benefit. But with that stuff that God had given them, there's great responsibility. People are responsible for responding properly to the knowledge that they're given, and then they have to live according to it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are the religious leaders of God's chosen people. They're the ones that actually have more access to the word of God. These are the ones that are far from faith. They're far from the requirements that God has. So far from being less accountable, they were most accountable. They had all of the knowledge. They had access to the scriptures. In fact, these people were some of the only Israelites that could read. So they were the ones that studied the scriptures, and then they're the ones that taught in the pedagogue and the synagogues. They knew more than anybody else. So the scriptures would say that they were actually in greater danger than everyone else. What does James say about teachers? Let not many of you become teachers, for you will be judged with stricter judgment. Yeah. There's the interesting story in this whole context where Jesus is rebuking the people of Israel. 
and he's rebuking the, the, the masses that have rejected him, entire cities. And he says that on the day of judgment, which is the day of God's wrath, he said it will be more tolerable, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah, of all cities, more tolerable for them than for you. He said, if I had gone to Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented by now. But you guys rejected me. Of all people, you should have been ready for me. That's Acts chapter, or Matthew chapter 10, verse 15. And so that truth that he gives to the common people, it applies even more to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So without true repentance, there's no hope for them. So John, he pushes harder. He says, even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John needs to learn to watch his mouth. He's talking to the most important people in Israel. You got to love this guy, huh? We need some people like this at DC and, and, uh, and, and confronting many religious leaders. So he provides this illustration about judgment. It's, it's meant to be alarming. It's, it's meant to confront the senses. Uh, I told first service about Jonathan Edwards. Does anybody remember that? Jonathan Edwards... Uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is the most famous sermon. It's great. Uh, you should read about it. Um, I have the sermon. It's, it's amazing. But it's just, it captivates the imagination, especially of people before Hollywood and things like that. And Jonathan Edwards was a thin, towering man. And uh, during his circuit preaching, uh, uh, he would preach at night in a robe, and he was extremely monotone. And he would hold a candle while he preached with his left hand or right hand, and he would read his sermons to the people. But his illustrations were so vivid that some people would just weep where they were sitting, and other people would literally get up and they would run out of the church screaming. That's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. So here's John, and uh, John the Baptist, not Jonathan Edwards. But the illustration that he gives here, he says the ax is set at the lowest portion of the trunk, where the trunk ends and the roots begin. The ax, he's saying that it's, it's placed there, marking its target. And the one that's holding the ax is ready to swing. And he actually says the ax is laid to all the trees, speaking of people, all the trees. And among them, the one that does not bear fruit worthy of repentance, he says this one is cut down. And there's no recovery for it because of where he's cut it. The results will be final. The tree is burned. It's finished. It's over. There's nothing left. Now, the truth is that whether or not the tree is cut down will be determined by the tree. Isn't that what he's saying? Be determined by the tree. If the tree bears good fruit, the ax will pass it by. But if the tree fails, then the ax will swing. There's just nothing in between. Now, in the context, good fruit, he says, is that which is consistent with repentance. He says, those trees are spared. Those who, have, who do not, they will perish, as Jesus said. But the responsibility to repent is, is placed upon the individual believer. That's why there's the command to repent in verse 2. Do the works, John is saying, or face the wrath of God. I'm just saying what the text says. And there's nothing more real than what the scriptures say. Amen. I had my own experience with fruit trees um, as you know, I came from Wyoming and I lived at 7,000 feet. We couldn't grow much of anything. Uh, they, we could grow crab apples and they make some mean jelly. But apples don't typically at that altitude get about much bigger than that. 
and uh, we couldn't grow much at all. So when we moved here, I was super excited to grow fruit trees. About 10 years ago, I planted two pear trees because I love pears. And one of them developed some kind of disease. And what it would do is it would spot the leaves and then it would spot the fruit. And none of them would make it to maturity and then they would fall off prematurely. And uh, so what I did, of course, I cut it down and I burned it. Uh, it wasn't in um, honor of this text. It's just I had this dead tree. <laughs> so what do I do? The, the other problem is before it died, I could tell that it would get all these spots. And then as my other tree started to to grow its fresh leaves and stuff, it would slowly start to gain spots, and then its fruit would then get it, and then they would never make it to maturity. But after I cut the diseased pear down, uh, the other one healed up. But for two years, it would continue to drop its fruit prematurely. So what do you think I did? I gave it one more year. And that was this year. And I got about 80 beautiful pears off of it. Yeah, so it must have heard. And, and seen my threat. But you can see in that that letting the other trees that fail to repent remain, they're not only in rebellion against God, they're infecting things around them. They're a danger all around, just like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this whole story, John's illustration, his, his threat is real. It's meant to be heard. It's meant to be obeyed. God's axe is laid to the root of rebellious humanity. And by his great mercy, you guys, he has granted repentance. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve the, the opportunity to repent because of our rebellion. But he's granted it. And he's saying, if you will repent, I will, I will deliver you. I'll save you. But men must bear good fruit. They must cast off any hope and heritage regardless of their ethnicity. John is saying, if you don't repent, you will be cut down. You will be cast away and burned. That's the truth. John continues. He says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's saying, my baptism is, is, is only one unto repentance. Okay? When someone is baptized according to John's baptism, it just represents their decision to repent. So they would get baptized because they agreed with John. Remember, they would hear him preach. They would be convinced of their sinfulness, their need to repent. So they were going down into the water confessing their sins. And because they wanted to be identified with that, John would, he would dunk them in the water publicly. I love that, that public uh, demonstration of your commitment. But John here is careful to say that his baptism is only preliminary. It's, it's anticipatory of what is coming, what, of who is coming and then what he is actually going to do. John is expecting to be followed up by the Messiah, who he says is mightier than me, so mighty, John says, I'm unworthy to even carry his sandals. I'm not worthy. This whole thing about the sandals, John is referring to the duty of a slave in that culture. The master would come home, and the slave would undo his sandals, remove them from him, and then, of course, wash his feet. But John is saying that that... Is, would be inappropriate for me. It would be inappropriate for me to even touch his sandals. It would be too presumptuous. It would be overstepping my bounds. He thought it would be the height of arrogance to think that he was remotely qualified to put his flesh on those sandals. Now, as I told first service, and I, I believe this with all my heart, our Western understanding of lordship is a bit off. 
is very different than John's. And I believe that if we were to understand things the way that he did, it would have a profound effect on the way that we live, if we had his perspective. A.W. Tozer says something to the effect that, that, you know, that he believes that every moral deficiency we have, every flaw in our worship, every spot in our service is directly related to a diminished view of Christ's majesty. The vision that so many people have of Christ in the West is utterly beneath him. And it shows in our lives, it shows in our society. Isn't that true? John had a proper view of who Christ was. He was God Almighty in the flesh. And as he's communicating about Christ here, he is not to be trifled with. And then John also knew what Christ was coming to do. He says, when he comes, he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what does all that mean? Now, like, seems like so many other things, there's a bit of controversy over this subject, depending on where people come from. So is it a reference to salvation, as some insist, of regeneration? Uh, or it, does it refer to speaking in tongues, as other people insist? I strongly disagree with both. And the reason is, is that John here is saying that this is what Jesus will do. Well, if this is Jesus's baptism, don't you think that he should be the one that defines it? And he actually does talk about it. So I think we should at least visit that, uh, especially now that I've said that two groups are wrong. Uh, his explanation for it um, was just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1. Uh, after he had been with his disciples for 40 days following his resurrection, he brings this up saying, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you shall receive power when this Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Look, the, I think the text is clear. This is not a reference to water baptism for believers. These boys is believers and have been for 40 days. Okay? So it's not a reference to the water baptism that we administer after someone confesses Christ. Also, there's no water mentioned in this baptism. It's the Holy Spirit. And there's no mention of salvation. None of that's in the text. Okay? In verse 4, just before this, Jesus refers to this baptism as the promise of the Father, which he says then is a baptism with the Spirit for the purpose of empowering people. What's, it, what's the purpose for? Empowering people to do what? To witness. To witness. Jesus refers to this also in Luke 24. He says, behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high, with power. But Acts is very clear. It's power to witness for Christ. Those are Jesus's words. Well, we go to Acts 2. It's the day of Pentecost. We find the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles and, and everyone that was with them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I agree. The initial result, a product of this, was they spoke in foreign languages that they had never spoken before. Of course, when the pilgrims who had traveled to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, when they heard them speaking in their own languages, they were amazed. What were the locals doing speaking the language of the Cappadocians? These are fishermen from Galilee. They don't, fishermen from Galilee didn't do that. Okay? So it was shocking to them. Of course, others... Uh, they had no explanation, so they accused them of being drunk. Right? You remember the story. 
Now, alcohol may facilitate inappropriate language, but it doesn't help people speak a language that they've never spoken before. Okay. But as we look at Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1, and we look at the text here, the primary purpose for the baptism was for witness. Beginning in verse 4 of Acts 2, Peter is for the very first time. Now, let me give some context here. When Jesus was being, when he was arrested and he was then executed, what were the, the disciples doing? They were hiding out for their lives. And then Jesus shows up three days later, he's resurrected. Now, a lot of people say that it's because of the resurrection that the disciples had boldness. The text doesn't say that. The text says that they then left Jerusalem and went up north, right, for a while. And then they spent 40 days with Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus talks to them about these things, promises the promise of the Father. For the very first time, after coming out of hiding, Peter boldly preached the gospel of Christ without fear, without fear. For the first time, Peter was a witness of the crucified, risen, ascended Christ, just as Jesus said would follow the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Did you see it? Yeah. The baptism, it wasn't for salvation. It wasn't for speaking in tongues. It was to empower God's people to fulfill the great commission. In fact, in Luke 24, that whole discussion follows the commission. So Jesus is going to tell people to preach the gospel to hostile other people groups all over the planet, and we should just do it on our own. That's not the case. He filled us. He gave us his spirit so that we could accomplish that. Now, I realize that that interpretation upsets the cessationists who don't believe in any of the gifts, and then it also upsets the Pentecostals who believe in all the gifts. Now, I'll give you my position on both of those later, but it upsets them because it doesn't agree with them. I'm not going to say anything that the text doesn't say. You understand? So if that's new to you or if you want to talk about it, I would love to have a friendly conversation with you later. Okay, this is what the text says. I'm going to stick to it. Let's get back to John's preaching about judgment. Uh, We don't want to miss out on that. Speaking of the Messiah, John says, his winnowing fan is in his hand. Now remember, in the other illustration, the axe is at the root. Here, the winnowing fan is in his hand. This is all talking about that which is imminent. This could come upon someone at any time. Why? Because judgment is appointed for a day. So how could this fall upon someone at any moment? Because you can die at any moment. And then your decision is sealed. That's what that's about. So this winnowing fan. Now, in the original language, it can mean two different uses or two different objects for the same use. So it was either kind of like a shovel and kind of pitchfork combination where you would be aggressive with the wheat and you would, you would pick it up and you'd throw it into the wind. And then you would beat it and you'd throw it into the wind. Or it was a basket that was arched like this. It had shallow rims on it. And you would, you would scoop up the grain and then you'd beat it. And you'd beat it in the wind. And then what would happen is the outer shell, the chaff, would separate from the wheat. The chaff then would then blow away in the wind into a pile. And the wheat being more dense would fall at your feet on the threshing floor. You get the image. And then what happens in the illustration here is that the wheat is gathered up because it's useful, and it's taken into the barn. It's preserved. Well, it's, it's, an, it's an image, as Jesus will explain later, of being in God's presence in heaven. It's our reward. It's our inheritance. But the chaff is then taken, and it's burned with unquenchable fire. Have you guys have seen a brush fire on a sunny day where there's wind? It burns fast, and it burns hot. 
Well, that's what chaff was. Chaff was just barren of any moisture. You put a little sun on it, a little air, and it's just whoosh. And that's the image here in the text. And it's similar to the one in verse 10 with the axemen and the trees. The trees are people, whether they're fruitful or they're unfruitful. And the people are either the wheat who are fruitful or the chaff that is unfruitful. And God is going to evaluate each of our lives accordingly. And the decision is up to you. Will you, will you repent and bear fruits worthy of repentance? Will you trust in Christ for your salvation to where he takes your sin and your judgment and he gives you his righteousness so that you will be viewed on judgment day as being above reproach? Or will you be burned with unquenchable fire? You will either be rewarded or you will be judged. Both illustrations in the text have Messiah as the judge, as the judge. Christ will be the judge of all men. He said, um, he said, uh, it's in John. He says, for the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Think of that. God the Father will judge no one on Judgment Day. It will be Christ. Peter says that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. Peter, or Paul, when he was preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he said that formerly God overlooked your ignorance, but he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world according to what is right. And he says he will do that with the man that he raised from the dead. And you have assurance of it because of the resurrection. Christ will be the judge. And, and, and one of the most common themes in Scripture is the final judgment. It's coming, and no one can stop it. Every one of us will stand before him. It's the reality. And how will you fare? That's the question. How will you fare on judgment day? Jesus will judge according to what is absolutely right. And that's why we have John the Baptist. We have Peter. We have Paul. We have Jesus himself coming to the world and saying, repent bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now, here's the sad part I said I would bring up at the end. It's like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People have misplaced trust. There, many people are trusting in something that cannot save them, things that God will give no recognition to. For example, some people are trusting in their baptism, and they're saying to themselves when they sin, they say, I'm baptized, so I'm good to go. Others think to themselves, I said the sinner's prayer, so all is well. And I hear people say this about other people. Well, they, they said the prayer. Um, there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible, not one time. And you have never heard me say it. I will not say it because I think it's as good as an incantation. I don't know how many people I've listened to say, well, I said the prayer. And they're hoping in their salvation, but they have never shown the fruits of repentance. Okay. I do not like the sinner's prayer at all. Now, in the scriptures, what we find and we've found it here in the church, is that people are actively listening to the message of the gospel and they believe. You know what happens after that? They are saved. They're born again. There's no altar call, and I'll never do one. There's no sinner's prayer. It's completely unbiblical. What we've found here is that people come in here, they've never been in a church, and they come out of curiosity, and, they, and they'll actually come for months and even years and just listen to the word taught. And they'll come to me after two years and they'll say, you know, one day you were, you were talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection and I just believed it. And God has transformed my life. There is no magic in the sinner's prayer. The only thing that matters is repentance and faith 
Too many people I talk to on the street, even in the church, say, well, I'm a good person. I do good things. Surely God will overlook my sin. No, he won't. Okay. Some people say that I go to church and I serve with other people. I even give sacrificially. It has to count for something. My father is a pastor. My parents are missionaries. I grew up in the church. As we go through the Gospels, Jesus say, it all is for nothing without repentance and faith. For nothing. So listen, on the day of judgment, if you have not repented, Jesus will say to you, I never knew you. In fact, Jesus says that on that day, many will come to me and say, hey, we preach the Gospel. We perform miracles. We, we, we fed the homeless. We, we did all this stuff. But they did not repent and trust in Jesus. And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. There wasn't a time when I did. I have never known you. Because nothing is more important, I believe, than the call to repentance. The worthless tree, the chaff, will be burned. And only those who have trusted in Christ and repented will be saved. So my encouragement to you is don't delay. If you haven't repented, it is time. It's time. Go ahead and stand up and I'll pray with you. The text is enough to get me in trouble with people. Let's pray. Well, Father, I think I'm familiar with enough of your word to know that you're not to be trifled with when it comes to eternity, when it comes to what we do with your son, who you had crucified in our place for our sins. Lord, when you call to repentance, it's, it's a command. And so, Lord, I, I pray that for those that are here and, and they've misplaced their trust, I, I pray that you would rob them of their security and they would see themselves in truth and that you, by your grace, Lord, you would draw them into repentance and faith. And Lord, the same for others who have perhaps never heard the gospel. They're not going to escape. But Lord, they can come to you and they can, they can trust in you and be saved. Lord, help the gravity of that weigh upon them. Lord, I desire that everybody in this room be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. So please, Lord, I pray that you'd impress upon their hearts. Help us. And Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the message that you've granted repentance to us. Lord, thanks for the gospel. Thank you that You've saved sinners like us. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.